As I was just sitting there, I finally realized what pastor realizes when things just come together by the providence of God. And it seems fit for him that everything that was said before the service just really matched and gelled very well with what we're about to look at here in Luke. And so I praise God for that. Verse 22 through 30. And he was pre and as he was passing through the city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter in through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to enter. Once the head of the household gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught on our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. This is the word of God. Well, what we really see here is uh, a scripture, a passage of our scripture where that there are just basically two sections. And while this particular reading may seem basic, there are a couple of important observations to be made, which leads to a couple of implications, very important implications. In the first section, what we see is a question being asked of Jesus. That'll be found in verse 22 and 23. And then the remaining of our portion of scripture is how Jesus responds to the questions, to the question given to him. So let's first look at our first portion here. In the preceding chapters, if you recall, and past sermons... We've seen that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and he continues here on his way to Jerusalem, teaching and preaching all those that he finds in the cities and the villages that he arrives to. And what he's been teaching about and preaching is on the nature of the kingdom, as well as the sign of its arrival, its growth and its extension, as well as now in response to a question this particular question, Jesus will be preaching on the entry requirements and the membership of his kingdom. Look at verse 22 and 23. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Now, Luke, in writing this, doesn't tell us what prompted this question. What observation did this particular person make? But historically, the question is very, very relevant because in view of the confused religious state of the day. In fact, let's suppose that we were back in Jesus' time amongst those members in the audience listening. We're the typical Jews. 
And, you know, first century Jews have held certain beliefs as well as traditions. For example, if we were like the Sanhedrins, perhaps it was possible we believe that everybody in Israel would be saved. But perhaps for maybe a few outright blatant sinners like tax collectors and, of course, all of the Gentile world. We'd also be waiting with great expectation of the coming Messiah to vanquish the Roman Empire, who now occupy our land in a list of many occupiers. And of course, they've committed unspeakable defilement against our people. Now, this would mean the reestablishment of the throne of David, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and of course, Israel taking its place on the world stage. But by the time we're done with our portion of scripture, what we're going to see is that it's evident that Jesus is going to provide a surprising view about membership in his kingdom, in size and in makeup, especially to the Jews of his time. So now that we have the question, we look at how Jesus responds. Notice what Jesus says in response in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, as Jesus responds, he immediately doesn't provide an answer to the question. And Jesus often does this, as we notice. The question we have is usually not the important question because it doesn't provide the important answer that we need. Instead, you may have easily missed this, Jesus' first response is a command. It's a command that we need, a command that we must obey. And that given command is strive. Strive to enter in through the narrow door. And when you look at this word, strive is a plural which denotes a wholehearted effort on the part of his listeners to make sure that they're including, included amongst those in the kingdom. Strive is also a technical term. And it corresponds to those who are competing in the games. In fact, it's much like the Winter Olympics that we've just seen broadcast in, re in recent days. It involves someone contending for a prize, uh, struggling, fighting, and intensely laboring, avoiding obstacles even to the point of agony. The athletes involved in the games, as you know, have been struggling and striving for the past four years since the last Winter Olympics. In fact, let's consider one of the greatest Olympians of all time, Michael Phelps. He competed in the Summer Olympics starting at the age of 15. In the year 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, and then 2018, Phelps won his first medal in 2000, and at the end of his Olympic career, he amassed 28 medals, 23 of those gold. That's 20 years of striving to be included amongst the best of the Olympians. And this doesn't include, of course, the years that he had been striving even before he made his Olympic run. So for many Olympians, like Michael Phelps, this is not a one-off and half-hearted effort, but it's very, very much their lifestyle, a lifestyle that includes dedication, 
discipline, a goal. Yes, even though agonizing moments will occur, there are setbacks and disappointments that will also occur. But the constant striving is what will eventually lead to victory. Folks, this is the same for every one of us as believers. In fact, this is what Jesus is bringing to view. Now, let me say this clearly because I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm saying. This isn't about achievement meriting entrance into the kingdom of God. Not at all. In fact, it's really about the attitude of mind that the believer has that informs his or her striving. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he puts it. We know this, this particular scripture very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He, in fact, uses the same metaphorical language about athletes. In verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, Paul's attitude informs his action which is his striving to meet his goal. And it's a spiritual goal that we see that's reached by self-control of the mind and discipline of the body. It's a goal making sure that you're being made fit from the inside out by the transforming power of God. And Paul is very, very aware that failure in this self-control is to avoid the many obstacles that lies on our path like our pride, or like the allure of the world, which can lead to disqualification even for a preacher of the faith. The Apostle Paul states that this is not aimless striving. There is a purpose in our striving, and that purpose is to please God. And the only way to please God is to bear fruits, fruits of salvation and fruits of faith. Now, a lot of times I have people who tell me, brother, you know, what I'm doing is that, uh, with no offense, you know, I'm participating in something like the Daniel fast. I just can't help myself and say, listen, forget about that. Instead, point yourself to here because God has commanded us to strive. This is what is more important. This is what will get us close to God. Just as it's written in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone's entered, entered by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. See, salvation is only found in Jesus. To find salvation, one must enter through Jesus alone, who is the door. The door provided for his sheep that he has called into his pasture. Acts 4.12 says this, And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can see it here that salvation is so narrowly defined, and it's offered only through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. 
So in an effort to live out this inward reality of the transforming power of God in our lives, we continually and consciously must make efforts to abstain from sin, moving towards the righteousness of God, promoting what is good, celebrating what is pure, and advocating biblical truth. And this is a deliberate walk. It's an intensified way of living. This is striving, and although it will be agonizing, the imperishable is what we obtain at the end. And that imperishable is Christ himself and his kingdom. Unfortunately, being a typical Jew of the day, it would have been our assumption that we were already upright. We were law-abiding citizens because we had observed the law of Moses, and that's all that we needed. Because in that, we also found that keeping the law of Moses, our salvation was guaranteed. But Jesus was informing his, this questioner and those gathered around him that salvation and membership is found in him alone and not by observing the law. Striving to get into the narrow door is how one is conformed and brought into repentance and faith. Being made fit to enter into the kingdom of God. And you know what? The law of Moses does not provide this. The law just leaves us guilty. But it does point us to the door, the door which is Christ, who is our Savior. And this is quite the opposite of how many people view the door today. The world and so-called nominal believers, when they approach the door, they see a door that is gigantically enormous. It lets anyone and everyone in with no regards of conversion or conforming to the will of God. This makes us different from the world. And that should be evident in the attitudes of our mind as we strive to enter in through the narrow door. It's a lifelong commitment for every one of us. Therefore, Jesus is less concerned about providing some numerical number, no matter how large or small that that might be. But instead, he's more interested in making sure his listeners know how to be certain that they're included in the number to be saved by God. So while the questioner wanted to know this, will the saved be few? Jesus' answer is, will the saved be you? That's really what we needed to hear. That's what the questioner and those around him needed to hear. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he puts it to Timothy in this way in 1 Timothy chapter 4. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. And this, again, is why we are to strive, because number one, it's a command of the Lord. And number two, because not only that, but it's a distinction between believers and unbelievers, Consider the other places that we're told to strive. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Strive together in prayer. 1 Corinthians uh, verse 14. Strive to build the church. How about Hebrews 4.11? Strive to enter rest. And in the same book, 12, verses 14. Strive for peace and holiness with which no one We'll see the Lord. 
Although Jesus didn't begin by directly answering the question, he does eventually answer it. And of course, the key is in that same verse that we're looking at, verse 24. It says, strive to enter in through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. As you apply your logic here, it's easy to assume that if many will seek but not enter, it's also true that only a few who seek will actually get in. The difference between those, the difference is the, uh, between those who obey the command to strive and those who don't obey. And this is depicted excellently in the story of Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian had to enter the narrow gate, the gate is the same symbolic gate that Jesus is pointing to right here. It's the narrow door of salvation. When Christian reached the gate after toiling and striving, he's met by the keeper of the gate, Mr. Goodwill. And who's Mr. Goodwill? Do you remember? Christ himself, right, who attends the door. And then he lets Christian in, and upon entry, Christian's burden of guilt and sin falls off. And he continues on his journey on the path to the celestial city, still striving because he's being assured of his salvation, and he's freed from the guilt and burden of sin. And this is the reality of every believer's salvation story. Our striving never, ever stops while we're still in these mortal bodies. Now contrast that with two characters who show up later in the story. Hypocrisy and formalists, who upon meeting Christians sometime later, revealed that they didn't enter through the narrow gate. Mr. Goodwill Christ himself did not ever let them in, but instead they snuck in by climbing over a wall. They took a shortcut. They never correctly came through the narrow gate that was manned by Christ. So they were doomed never to be able to follow the path set before them. Bunyan's allegorical story best illustrates this point that Jesus is making about those who will seek and will not be able to enter. They never sought, nor they ever felt the need to properly enter through the door Unlike the disciplined athlete who constantly strive to reach their goal, they take the path of least resistance, a different way on their own terms and on their own merit. Eventually, they're lost because they take the easy way instead of the difficult path that demanded striving. It's great for us to remember this because, as a note, Christianity is inconvenient. It demands putting on Christ and living faithfully. It demands gathering today on Lord's Day. It demands using our gifts and blessing one another. It demands us abstaining from sinful practices and committing ourselves to biblical truth. It's about striving, and no one can do it without God. So unless God has drawn his people... Those who seek aren't really seeking. They don't have the conviction and the heavy burden that we have. Guilt and sin doesn't trouble them. Again, in John 10.10, we're told over and over again, Jesus is the shepherd and he calls his sheep. And because they know his voice, they come. 
Those who've not been called, they are actually seeking a different gate with different requirements and with ulterior motives. And they misunderstand the holiness of God who must punish sin. And the people who are unconcerned about that don't even care about sin and judgment. And they try to come with false assumptions of membership. And this affirms what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. If you remember, in verse 13, he starts by, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, quoting Isaiah, saying, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the son of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Yes, so the answer to the question is that only a few people who have ever existed in humanity in all times will ever be saved. This is what John was speaking about when he said that this passage is very sobering. Because this is very sobering. Think about it. Just like the Jews who were hearing Jesus' response, they're probably shaking their head, left confused, and just thinking about the implications. We, as we look at this, should be thinking, wow, we should be humbled at the fact that God has graciously chosen us to be part of this small number in the remnant. But second, mostly everyone you see in this world, your family, your friends, your associates, colleagues, your favorite entertainer, politician, journalists, etc., etc., they will never find this narrow door. That's very sobering. And it's why the gospel is preeminent amongst anything else. It's the same picture that we see here as we're going through Jeremiah, as John just read. What will remain of true Israel but be, will be but just a few faithful in number that God has preserved for himself. So even now, those of us today who regularly attend, we must make sure that we don't become complacent. Like those in the member of Jesus' audience, we must make sure that we make every effort to be counted among those who are to be saved. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there with his answers. He goes on to explain through the use of a vivid story. Again, imagine that you're amongst the population of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish crowd. You're not a scribe, you're not a priest, you're not a Pharisee. No, perhaps you're just a skilled tradesman, like a stonecutter. Maybe you're a tent maker, fisherman, or even an innkeeper. You aren't among the religious or political officials, just an average, everyday, normal citizen of the Jewish population. And now... You're being portrayed in Jesus' story. Look at verse 25 through 27. 
Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer to you and say, I do not know where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And everybody in the crowd is saying, wait, what? That's us? Right? There are a few important observations to be made here. Look at this. First, although the story sounds like a parable, it's not. Because Jesus personalizes the story. He does this while communicating the truth about events of the last judgment. Generally, parables are given to hide truth for unbelievers, like in Luke chapter 8, 10, when the disciples would ask Jesus, listen, why do you speak like this? Why don't you just give it to them plain and normal instead of using parables? And Jesus says something utterly shocking, remember? Because if I told them, then they would believe and be saved. And we'll talk about that one later. <laughs> but here we see Jesus is also putting his listeners smack in the middle of the story and giving them a central role. And what this, what this does is make the story come alive and real to everybody who hears. Second, did you notice the use of pluralities in the story? In verse 25 through 27, it says, you begin to stand outside knocking on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. We, uh, or you, will then begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evil doers. See, what Jesus is doing here is that he's condemning all of society. Every one of these average, everyday citizens are called evildoers. Can Jesus be any more explicit about the spiritual condition, about the spiritual condition of humanity? No one is good. Our default position is that we are bad people. It's confirmed here that we are all evildoers. And the only hope is the righteousness of Christ that would be credited to us. Now, again, if you're sitting there as part of the audience and you're Jewish, you believe that you had salvation. But for the fact that, gee, that you are Jewish and you're a child of Abraham, but you're all wrong. Every one of them, all wrong. And nevertheless, Jesus graciously warns them. The third observation that we make is that there is a time limit to salvation. The head of the household shuts the door, permitting no more entry. This speaks about a future time when God is going to literally withdraw his salvation offer. After the offer has been withdrawn, no matter how many times you knock at the door, it will remain shut forever. No amount of begging, no amount of prayer will ever change anything. It will be in that day that the actual number of the elect of God would have been reached. What that number is, I have no idea. But thinking like the time of Noah, 
when he faithfully preached the coming judgment of God and no one listened. They all took him to be a fool. And they never entered the ark of salvation that was being made prepared for them. Then when God closed the door himself, no one could open it. Time of salvation had expired. As we know, it was only those who were in the ark that were preserved. Everybody who stood out knocking on the door, well, they were swept away by the judgment of God. And the same picture that we see is in view here, right? Fourth, notice this. The people in Jesus' story could only claim proximity to the Lord, but never an intimacy that comes with personal relationship. Trying to appeal to the Lord, they would say, wait, we ate and drank in your presence. We, you taught on our streets. What we don't hear is any type of sympathetic agreement with the words of Jesus. There is no repentance, no faith, no obedience, no obedience to strive, obeying the commandments of the Lord. None of that. They thought they had it. They believed they were qualified based on their ancestry. And because of this, they are to be excluded. Now, for those of you who stand outside and never have committed yourself to Christ, understand this, that even if you sit within the pews day in and day out, your proximity is never a substitution for repentance. Let me repeat that again. Your proximity is never a substitute for repentance. God will deny entrance based on the fact that he never knew you, as he's already told these people twice. He never called them. They were never part of his fold. That's why he said, I don't know where you are from. I didn't call you. So they never considered him to be the way, the truth, and the life. So standing there perplexed, after hearing his teachings, even though they thought because they were close to him, because they heard his words, they thought everything is fine and everything is good. Can't help to think of a lot of people who claim to know Jesus because they have simply been exposed to his teaching and they equate that to saving knowledge. But something more than presence is required when it comes to knowing Jesus. So again, he tells them, I do not know where you have come from. Away from me, you evil doers. In other words, outward contact with Jesus is never, never like the inward reception that needs to take place. That's everything. The inward reception of Christ. Now, these people heard what Jesus taught, but there was no conviction of sin and righteousness. They thought it was enough to know Jesus, but failed to realize it was more important that he knew them. That's what it's always about. Does Christ know you? And because he doesn't know them, they don't believe. This is affirmed in John 10.26. Remember this portion of scripture? A lot of people seem to mix up. There Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. I want you to think about that very, very clearly. Because, again, we often get this mixed up, thinking of it the other way around. Many people will say this, 
will, will, will look at this and say, you don't believe, that's why you're not my sheep. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep, not the other way around. And this vividly reminds me of the people in the streets when I evangelize. So many people with pinpoint accuracy are depicted right here in this passage. They've told me themselves they're not interested in the gospel or they've heard it when they were a kid and that's enough. And then when the time comes, they say they will appeal to God on the basis of his goodness and his willingness to forgive everyone. Now, the thought that God is willing to forgive everyone and anyone means they don't have a clue about God's holiness or his righteousness or his justice. It turns out that the very goodness of God that they're depending on is the very reason why they'll be excluded from his blessings. This is a clear picture of those standing outside, knocking on the door, asking to be let in, only to experience God's full, complete rejection. This rejection will result in the most sorrow sorrowful and bitter display of emotions contrasted contrasted against the most joyful and peaceful existence to come. Look at verse 28 and 29. There we see as Jesus continues his story, in view are the people excluded from the kingdom versus those who have entered in. It's the same difference between heaven and hell, guilty, not guilty, saved and unsaved. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table of God. Now, those who've just been rejected are simply confined to a place called that place. It's a place where those who, are, those who are there are experiencing the ultimate form of grief and frustration. Now, many things have been said about the physical torment of hell. But I don't know if you've ever considered the mental torment that accompanies that. Have you ever been so, so resentful of the consequences of your actions that it let, left you bitterly weeping? Have you ever been so angry, whether at someone or something, that your jaw just seized up and you burned with uncontrollable rage? Now just imagine that moment stretching out and lasting for all eternity. The wailing, the weeping is indicative of deep regret and disappointment some will experience. While the gnashing of teeth is indicative of others who are experiencing uncontrollable rage. But why? It's because they've been excluded from the kingdom and locked out. But not only that, the situation is made all the more worse when they see not only the heroes of the faith, like Abraham and all the way through the prophets who they thought they would accompany into the kingdom of God, but when they also see from every corner of the earth, this is representative of all the Gentiles. Yes, those unworthy Gentiles, they'll say, are partakers also in what rightfully belongs to us. When they see that, they're going to completely lose it 
and go completely out of their minds. There's going to be a deep envy and hatred of the people of God amplified to a level that we've never seen before. In fact, their sinning will continue because the object of their, their rage is God himself who has rejected them. They'll continue to hate God and curse him for all eternity. This expression of grief by weeping and wailing and the expression of anger and resentment by the exertion of their gnashing teeth will last forever. And it's only matched by the opposite expression that we will feel as believers. This unfathomable joy and peace to be experienced by those being let into the kingdom. So while unbelievers are forcibly removed, as we see in verse 28, being thrown out to utter shame and darkness, by contrast, those who are being saved are going to enjoy the kingdom of God, a great rest and banquet at the table of God. So the recap goes like this. Commanded to strive, many will ignore. When the time of salvation is over, Many will be shut out, knocking to be let in. Then the climax of the judgment will occur when those who are outside are thrown out further from the presence of God. And this entails a harsh physical removal to experience damnation, shame, and eternal torment. What we've just witnessed is a trial, a verdict, and a judgment. Now, if you're amongst the Jews listening to the story of Jesus, it is mortifying. This would have surprised them because they thought they had exclusive rights to the kingdom. Particularly because as the story goes, they'll be excluded and cut off completely. To the typical Jews, this scenario never entered the mind. In fact, they would have said something like, we lose out and those Gentile dogs... They gained what was ours? Impossible. Remember, to the Jews, there are only two types of people that exist on the earth. Jews and everyone else. So, what Jesus is doing is flipping everything entirely upside down. He's correcting the misunderstanding of the one who had the question and everybody else in the audience about the membership and entrance into his kingdom. Jesus concludes this compelling story with a phrase that's simply to be understood in this context. Look at verse 30. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Those who believe they were the natural inheritors of God's kingdom will lose out to those who they believe had never even had a part in the claim of the kingdom at all. It's clearly evident that Jesus has provided a surprising view to membership in his kingdom, especially to the Jews of the day. So in closing, my hope is that if you are here any one of you among us today who have not been actively striving to enter in through the narrow door that today you start your effort. Because when the door of salvation is closed, it'll be closed forever. Membership of the family of God is not earned. It can't be transferred, 
can't be inherited and passed down like a family heirloom. And, and it can't be gained by cheating. You must personally come through Jesus, who is the door who his sheep must enter in into his pasture. Otherwise, you'll be numbered with those who ask God, open up, let us in. And that number is going to be a very, very big number. Unfortunately, once the door of salvation is closed, it's closed forever. And the only thing that remains is God's wrath. Oh, and your weeping and gnashing of teeth. So while you still have breath and the second coming of Christ hasn't happened, strive, strive earnestly as Paul has told us to, to make sure that we're counted amongst those who are let in. You know how you do that? Here's the first step. Admit your guilt. Repent of your sins. Come to saving faith and a personal, intimate relationship with God. Particularly while the door still remains open. For now. For how long, we don't know. None of us knows. Amen? This is the word of God. Join me in our last hymn, Jesus Paid It All. Mm-hmm.